as we gather together in church, uh, last week we, one of the passages we looked at was in Ephesians 4. You don't need to turn there, turn to 1 Corinthians 5. We'll be there in just a minute. But, but as we were looking and... That one's very weird. <laughs> As we were looking in uh, Ephesians 4, uh, we talked about the pastor and that God has given uh, uh, apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers, evangel- apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to the church. And, and the purpose of the role of the pastor is to... Uh, the edifying of the body of Christ, the building up of the believers, and so that we all come into the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. And that's the measure that we strive for. So that's the reason why God put pastors in the church, was to help all the people, pastor included, become more like Christ and grow in their maturity. So before we have the message this morning, Uh, I would like you to just take a couple minutes, just you, pray quietly, and ask God to speak into your heart from his word today, because this is what he said he wanted to do in the church, and now you pray and ask him to do exactly that. Those of you watching online, you do the same thing. Just pray. Say, God, help me learn and listen and help me make a change in my life, okay? Lord, you are the God of grace and glory, and someday we'll enjoy your glory, and right now we enjoy your grace. We appreciate your love and grace and mercy, and we're so thankful that we could be part of your family and gather in your church. We pray that you would speak into our hearts and lives this day, that this would not just be, oh, another Sunday, but a day where we listen, where we learn, where we grow closer. May we leave this place feeling more connected to you and closer with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of the message is that grace does not excuse sin. It does not excuse sin. So that's the big idea this morning. Grace does not excuse sin. So if you got that down, you can just feel free to leave. Um, Now listen, there's more to it, okay? We need to look at it and understand it from a biblical perspective. Because we appreciate God's grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. We, uh, God gives us faith to believe in him and receive his grace. And we receive that gift of salvation. And he says when he saves us, he washes away all of our sins. Don't you wish you could do that in the laundry? All the stains just removed forever. That would be great. God does that in your heart and in your life. And what a blessing. We love his grace. But sometimes, as Paul says in the book of Romans, some people use God's grace as an excuse. Well, I can go ahead and sin because I'm covered by God's grace. Grace does not excuse sin. 
All right, the first thing I want you to see is that nobody has the responsibility to spy on others and pass along what they might be doing wrong. Nobody has that responsibility. Gossip is destructive, and God hates it when people stir up discord among the brethren. Your primary responsibility is show love and grace to others. 1 Peter 4.8, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, second idea to think about under this grace does not ignore sin is that whenever possible, sin should be dealt with privately. Whenever that's possible, deal with it privately. Now, I don't know this dad may not be correcting his son. I just have an imagination being a son who got corrected by his dad a lot. I can kind of picture that taking place in this scene. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18? If you have a brother, if somebody has wronged you, a brother in Christ has wronged you, what's the first step that you take? Go to the person one-on-one, try and resolve it. If that doesn't work, then get others. If that doesn't work, then it goes before the church. But, but we go first to that person. We also confess our sins directly to God through Jesus Christ, privately. You don't have to set up an appointment and come into me and make a confessional because you confess your sins right to the Lord. Now, if you need some help understanding what the Bible says about that sin and overcoming it, then I can help with that. But I can't intercede for you on your sins. There's one mediator between God and man. Who's that? The man Christ Jesus. That's right. Jesus the Christ. He is the one. And so you confess your sins privately to God. And, and in business um, teaching, and, and uh, I worked in HR in a business for years, and, and one of the things you, you teach and what you tell them is private rebuke, public praise. So if they do something bad, you pull them aside and talk to them. But if they do something good, you praise them in front of everybody. And parents, you should also fuss at your kids privately, not not publicly, not berate them. Now, I know some of you in this room have had an occasion where somebody has publicly embarrassed you and yelled at you in front of everybody and they didn't need to do it that way. And you know how I know there are people in this room who've experienced that? Because some of you have been in the military. <laughs> and man, in boot camp, that's what they do. They try and break you down, embarrass you, harass you. And, and we've been there and done that, right? But, but sometimes... You need to rebuke in public, right? If it's dangerous or if they're harming somebody or um, let's just say that you see your kid punch some other kid. You should rebuke him publicly in front of the other kid. You should tell your kid, that's wrong. You don't do it that way. Here's how you do it. No, uh, but you don't punch people. And then what if you see some other kid punch your kid? Well, then you say in front of that other kid, you say to your kid, you know that's wrong. You're not supposed to treat people that way. And then you tell their parents. So the parents can then discipline the kid appropriately. Now, if your kid's the one doing the punching, you don't have to deal with all the punishment right there. Maybe you include spanking. Maybe for that kid, Something less than a spank, something other than a spanking is more effective. 
For some kids, no, no TV, no video games, no cookies. Uh, maybe that's more effective than giving the kid a spanking. So what works for that kid, that's what you do. And, you know, if you got a problem with a kid who's an older teen, you ask for the keys and the driver's license. And, and that's a discipline that you do. Uh, but what, whenever possible, when it's possible, try and deal with it privately. Don't embarrass people publicly when you can easily deal with it as a private issue. However, when sin becomes known, we are required to address it. We are required to address it. Earlier, I asked you to turn to 1 Corinthians 5. Are you there? Are we there yet? All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, this actually reported means this is public knowledge. Everybody knows about it. It's a common thing. It's common knowledge. It's public knowledge. It's widely reported. It, everybody knows about this, and it's going on inside the church. Now, we live in a culture that's very evil and wicked, but it's not supposed to be in the church. He said, there's sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. That's specifically um, condemned in the law in Israel. Leviticus and Deuteronomy said, you don't do that. It's wrong. Now, was this guy's dad still alive? We don't know. I'm not sure it matters according to the law for Israel. It, it, it was the right, the wrong thing to do, the right thing to avoid. And, and so um, what, what was going on there, the, the Gentiles didn't even understand that. The Gentiles couldn't comprehend that. People who did not know Jesus Christ thought that was a terrible sin and it's going on in the church. In our culture, our culture says as long as it's two consenting adults, it doesn't matter what they do. But God's word has other rules, and we need to follow God's word. So he says, this is terrible. And then in verse 2, he says, you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Now, we as a church have had to mourn over the sins of certain people. A couple of times we've had to have discipline in the church. Once a person withdrew their membership and we didn't do discipline, but another time we had church discipline because they were dividing the church and causing issues. Now, I was a business manager for eight years. I was involved in HR, human resources, and then uh, became a manager and then an executive in the company. And, and in those eight years, we probably dealt with 30, 40 employees who had to be fired for cause, a couple of them. We then had to file criminal charges against them and see them put in jail. I've been involved in, in pastoral and church ministry for 30 years, twice we've had to do that. See, everybody thinks the church is a mess. The church is no messier than the rest of the world. 
There's more accountants who are thieves than there are people in church who are thieves. There's, there's more bad people running businesses than there are bad people running ministries. It just is worse when it's in the ministry. So it stands out more. A lot of people say, I don't want to go to church because there's too many hypocrites. My dad always used to tell them, oh, come on, one more won't hurt. Uh, listen, we, we need to realize church is supposed to be a place where we yield to God. In fact, in another passage, Paul's talking about sexual sins, and he said, let it not once be named among you. It shouldn't happen in the church. And when it does, as our church has experienced, it brings a grief. It's a heartache. And, and you want to get it corrected. And if the person is not willing to correct their life, you want to get them out of the church. And that's exactly what Paul tells them to do. He says in verse 2, You are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. You were supposed to deal with it. Then he says in verse 3, Now, to put in context here, you need to understand, Paul is an apostle. Apostles had authority over churches. Today, there are not apostles. The last apostle was John. When John died, the role of the apostle died. When the Bible was completed, the role of the prophet died. So now the church answers directly to the Lord. And so it, what happens is our church has to deal with this inside the church. If we need help dealing with something, we appeal to other churches to get their wisdom and insight. But nobody shows up as an authority over this church. We answer to the Lord. Uh, Christ wrote seven letters to seven churches, and the five churches that he rebuked in Revelation 2 and 3, and all five of those, he said, I will come to you. I will deal with this if you don't take care of this problem. John was still alive. He didn't say, I'm going to sick an apostle on you. Even in John's day, the role of the apostle was fading away. But the churches are just being started. The scripture is still being written. And Paul is an apostle representing God here on earth and speaking the word of God for God. And so Paul, as an apostle, says in verse 3, I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present. Him who has done this deed. Paul said, I'm responding to this as if I were right there because I've heard enough of the information and the evidence to know this is true. Verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, that sounds weird, right? You really want to think it sounds weird? Read what theologians have said about that. That sounds even weirder, right? And here's the deal. We do not turn people over to Satan for the destruction of the body. Apostles could. We can't. What we can do is we can have discipline. Now, if Lance was being horrible 
really bad, causing all kinds of problems. Ben had to go pick him up at the police station, sign him out, take him home, all these issues. Should Ben then discipline Lance? Why? To teach him the right way and also to punish for bad behavior. The Bible teaches both. Now, you don't punish just for fun. Oh, boy, this is going to hurt you a lot more than it's going to hurt me. <laughs> you know, I, my dad always used to say, this, or not always, but sometimes he'd say, this is going to hurt me more than you, and then he'd spank me. I thought, did that hurt your hand? You know, I didn't understand until I was a dad and had to discipline my own kids, and it hurts your heart. It's hard to discipline, right? It's hard. Now, sometimes it's really easy if they really make you mad, but it's more dangerous to discipline when you're mad, right? It's more dangerous. But, you know, we have to realize in the church, we hold each other accountable. Now, what was the first thing? Go back to that first slide, Tim. The first thing we said, nobody has the responsibility to spy on other people and then to share what might be wrong. Nobody has that job. We can't, as a church, elect Griston to now be the arbiter of rightness in our church, and his job is to go follow everybody around. And so Juana comes walking in the door, and there's Griston checking her out, you know. <laughs> no, we, we don't have that. God doesn't want that. But, number two, when it becomes known, we, we have to deal with it. Number three, sorry, when it becomes known, we have to deal with it publicly. And, and so, as a church, we've had to do that. Sadly, if you punish with joy, there's something wrong with you. Whenever there's discipline, as a parent or in the church, it's with sadness. It's with sorrow. There's a grief. And you do it because it's the right thing to do. Not because it's fun, not because it's enjoyable, not because it gives you a power thrill. You do it because it's the right thing to do. But if you do it correctly, you do it with grief. There's a sorrow there. And so um, you may have heard on the news that uh, Liberty University has fired their president, Chancellor um, Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, Personally, I think he should have been removed a long time ago, but then again, I don't know all the circumstances, right? None of us do. But, but there was enough behavior over the last several years. But listen, what happened? When it became known there was a big problem and a big issue that was widely known, they fired him. That was appropriate. That was the, the appropriate step to take. Could he be restored to the Lord? Absolutely. God's a God of grace and glory. But he has to repent and go through a process of restoration. I don't think he'll ever be restored to that school. I don't think he should ever have that position in any school. But we have to deal with sin when it becomes known. It's not being judgmental. It's not being critical. It's not being narrow-minded. Uh, it's simply obeying God and showing discernment. That's what we have to do. That's exactly what Paul said the church in Corinth needed to do. And that's what they did eventually because Paul insisted upon it. 
So Paul said the appropriate response to sin would have been to grieve when they learned of it, to call the person to repentance. If the guilty person did not repent, then the next step is to address church discipline and eventually remove him from membership. They didn't go through the steps appropriate. Now Paul's saying it's time to remove this man from membership because he's openly flaunting the laws of God. He's openly opposing God's will in the church. He needs to be removed. Weird things happen in churches. I think I've shared here before that I wasn't in that church. If I had been, I would have left. But I knew of a church when I pastored in another community. There was a church in that community. And before I moved to Sabarita, there was a a church just down the road, and the pastor and the music guy, they, they had a pastor on staff and a music director on staff, and the pastor and his wife got a divorce, and the music minister and his wife got a divorce, and then the pastor married the music director's wife, and the music director married the pastor's wife. Here's the really bad news. They stayed in the church and kept their jobs. It destroyed the church. If the church had dealt with the sin appropriately, the church might have thrived. We don't have the luxury of ignoring sin. 2 Thessalonians 3.6, I think this was read earlier in the, script, in the service, but we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. And, you know, we, Paul says here, look down in uh, verse uh, 11, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a vile or a drunkard, not even to eat with such a person. See, when somebody has brought this evil into the church, we're supposed to separate them. And when somebody's under church discipline, we're supposed to all withdraw a little bit. It doesn't mean you go over to their house and throw eggs at it. It doesn't mean that you do anything to hurt them at all, except you don't open your heart and your home to them. You don't go to their house for dinner. You say, I'd love to get together with you, but first you need to deal with this issue. And in our culture, within Christianity worldwide, but especially in America, we think the best thing to do is just keep showing love, just overwhelm them with love, 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 because love overlooks sin, right? No, that's not what the Bible teaches. And when somebody has done something to hurt the church, the church, which is the people, the assembly of people, we have to respond to it appropriately. And if you then go and try and deal with that person one-on-one -on -one and just show love, and then you're not doing what Paul said the church is supposed to do. So we are required to address it. Um, the fourth thing here, you should not show more grace than God does. 
not show more grace than God does. Can, can you see that picture? Do you see the little boat in the water? There's a little canoe in the water, and, and the person, uh, it, it, it's out on the, the edge there. It's on the left of the screen. If you can't say, I don't know how dark it is to you guys, but, but there's the water horizon, there's a little bump. That's the head of the person in the canoe. Now, do you see any land in that picture? Way back, way back, there's a little piece, miles away. And see, what we want to do is we want to just shower this person with love and, and we want to pick them up and get them out of that mess. You know what we have become psychologically, what we have become in churches? We have become in it. <laughs> Thank you. We have become enablers. We have become enablers. What does an enabler do? He makes it easier for that person to sin. So, when a parent has a child who punches some other kid in the face and the parent doesn't discipline them, the parent encourages that child in that sinful behavior. When a church knows of known sin, we don't seek it out. You know, I don't require you to get covenant eyes on your computer and then send me a list or the chairman of the deacon a list of all the websites you've ever addressed and every web page you've ever done and they can see it all on their computer. We don't require that. Hey, if you need that to help you be disciplined on the computer, then go for it. I have covenant eyes on my computer. Some of the other guys do too. It's just to protect you from access to things that you don't want to see. But we cannot show more grace than God. You, you can't put your arm around him and say, oh, I know you did that, but you know God loves you and I love you and we'll get beyond this. You have to correct it. You have to deal with it. So Paul deals with it. And he uses an illustration. If you look in verse 6, your glorying is not good. Oh, by the way, back to verse 5. And when he talked about delivering one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, look what he says, his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. If a believer sins, he's still saved. He doesn't lose his salvation. He's still saved. Hebrews 12, uh, the writer writes about, you are a disobedient child needing God's correction. But he doesn't say you're no longer God's child. So you're still saved if you sin. You're just, God's not happy with your behavior and there are consequences. So you'll get in heaven, but you won't have that gold, silver, precious stones waiting for you there as a reward. Verse 6, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Put just a little bit of yeast in a loaf of bread dough, and, and what happens? The whole thing is affected by it. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, since ye truly are unleavened. Well, if somebody put just a little drop of cyanide in your drink, would you want to drink it? If you knew about it, definitely not. Why? Well, it's just a little bit. 
Just, just a tiny little Ebola, not, no big deal, right? Just a little bit. You would, you would be scared of it. You would flee from it. And just a little bit of sin tolerated. Now, we're all going to struggle, right? Paul wrote Romans 7, the things I don't want to do, I do sometimes, and sometimes the things I want to do, I don't do, and I'm just thankful to the grace of God who gives me the power to get on. So we're going to struggle, but when we get to the place where we just accept sin, oh, well, yeah, I, well, I know she did that, but, you know, we're all sinners, right? Who am I to judge? As a church, we need to deal with things when they come up. Now, I got to tell you, I don't know of anything, so it's safe for me to preach this message now. If I knew of something, then I wouldn't preach this message and then say, oh, and by the way, it's John. No, I, I don't know of anything. <laughs> I don't know. And, and so, I, honestly, I'm just saying we need to be prepared because it has happened in the past. Some of you have been around long enough to experience it several times. And, and by the way, those several times, I mean over the last 30 years, not several times last month. Okay? And then, so he says, therefore, verse 7, purge out the old leaven that ye may be a new lump. Purge it out. Then in verse 8, then you keep the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Uh, you purge it, and it's like when you go to God and you confess your sin and He forgives you, and then you start afresh. And then maybe later in the same day, you have to do the same thing, uh, but you keep going back and correcting. You correct yourself back to the standard of God's behavior. It's like when you're driving a car down the road. Nobody perfectly stays in their lane. They're drifting one way or the other. And now they have rumble strips, right? So you can tell if you've drifted a little too far. That's nice. Uh, in the old days, they, <laughs> you just kind of fell off the side of the road. But, uh, and, and in other countries, uh, down in Mexico, they've got a curb on the side of the main highway from Nogales down to Hermosillo. So there's a curb the whole way. So if you train over, it's boom, you, you go up on the curb. And if you get over that, then you're really stuck. But, but we're correcting back to standard. And listen, this is really important. We correct our lives back to God's standard. We correct our church back to God's standard. But we don't lower the standard. We correct ourselves to it. And what the church in Corinth was doing was lowering the standard. They were saying, anybody who wants to come and be part of this church, no matter what they've done, who they are, what's going on, we just love them and just come on in. And Paul said, it's great to love people, but you need to call them to repentance. And because the church did not do its job, this man was now moved beyond that repentance. He might have repented and changed. But now he was hardened in his sin because the church didn't do his job. And there are a lot of kids hardened in their bad behavior because their parents didn't correct them. So, look down in verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle. All right, what letter is this in the Bible? What's it called? 
1 Corinthians. So what's Paul talking about in verse 9? Pre-1 Corinthians letter. He wrote a previous letter to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle. Where is that epistle? We don't have it. Why? Well, the Holy Spirit didn't preserve it for us. So he wrote a previous letter to them. And, and then else, later on in this book, he's answering questions that they wrote back to him. Now, maybe he didn't express it well enough because he has to clarify what he previously said. And so now the Holy Spirit's helping him. He's going to get it more accurate. But he said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Verse 10, yet I did not mean with the sexually immoral people of the world or with covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. He's saying, listen, in this world, you cannot get away from sexually immoral, covetous, extortioning, idolatrous people. Have you noticed that in your life? The world's filled with people like that. And he said, you can't isolate yourself. God doesn't want you to be in a little Christian silo where you, you only deal with Christians. When I was a business manager, I was repeatedly asked if I wanted to list our business in the Christian Yellow Pages. And I said, nope. And as a church, did we want to advertise in the Christian Yellow Pages? And I said, nope. We don't even advertise in the Yellow Pages. I don't even know if they still print them anymore. It's all online now. Uh, but listen, I didn't want that. Because if you're a Christian and you need somebody to fix something at your house, you want the best person to do it. If they're a Christian, great. You hire them, you deal with it. If they're not a Christian, then you get a chance to share the gospel with them while they're in your house. In fact, Tim Martinez, weren't you saying that you worked on a lady's air conditioning unit and then she talked to you about the Lord? Was that you? Okay, guess not. He looks confused. So either he doesn't remember and I have a better memory than what happened in his life than he does. But So it was another guy I was talking with. They did a, a job at a lady's house and then she talked to them about the Lord. And then they had a fun time talking about the Lord together. And, and I have witnessed to a, a vacuum cleaner salesman in our living room before. And, and you, you have that opportunity. You talk to him a little bit. Tell him about your church. Uh, but listen. We cannot isolate ourselves. Let, let me go on here, okay? I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 11, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. He said, listen, if they're a believer acting like that, you must separate from them. If they're a non-believer... You be friendly toward them, but never allow a person who is not following God to be one of your inner circle advisors. You listen to those who are following God because your inner circle advisors impact your life and it changes the way you think. In fact, I personally experienced that. When I was a business manager, there was a guy I really respected. He was not a believer. But I learned a lot from him, and for a while there, I was annoying Kathy. I got over it. I never annoy her anymore. And, but Kathy said to me once, 
Is he, are you listening to everything he says or just the business stuff he says? Because we can get swayed in our life by other people. So you have to be friendly to other people. You have to be kind and gracious. In fact, I think if you eat in a restaurant, leave a very generous tip. And then a card for our church. We've got some on the back table. A card inviting them to church. Or a gospel track. But only leave a track if you leave a very generous tip. And, and show kindness to your neighbors. Be friendly. Wave to them. Get to know their names if you can. Some people do not want to be known. We've got one in our neighborhood. They have signs outside, trespassers will be shot and prosecuted and all kinds of, no trespassing, all over the whole yard, you know. And I've never thought about going up and knocking on their door. <laughs> I'm not sure it would be safe. But, but let's show grace, but when it's a believer, see, if it's a non-believer, and say, he invites me to lunch. Could I go to lunch knowing he's a sinful person? Yes, I could. In good conscience, go have lunch with him and talk with him about the Lord. Or invite him to church. Or even just telling him before we eat, I'm going to pray for my food. Can I pray for yours as well? Um, uh, just something. But if it's a non-believer, I mean, sorry, if it is a believer and he's in known sin and he's choosing not to repent and he asks you out to lunch, even if he says, I'm going to pay, you say, I'm sorry, I can't go there because you're making choices that the Bible says I need to step back from. Now, if you want to talk about repentance and how that would work in your life, I'll be happy to go to lunch with you. I'll even pay. But if you don't want to talk about that, I can't go to lunch with you. Because that's what God's Word says. God has put restrictions on how we interact. And it's not because God is mean. But listen, if your absolute very best friend sins against God, then you have to call that best friend to repentance. And if they don't repent, then you step away. What if you're married to them? That's a different subject, okay? If you're married to them, there's a different process that you have to go through. But listen, we have to be serious as a church about how we deal with sin. And Paul's not Paul's dealing with it now as here's another person not in your house. You're not married to them. They're sinning. How do you do? You separate with them. You separate from them, rather, and, and you call them to repentance. And then he says in verse 12, what have I to do with judging uh, those also who are outside? Do not judge those who, do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So here's what the church does. Not this church, the church, the generality of church in America and across the world. Here's what we do. If there's somebody who is a believer and we know they're sinning, maybe you've seen a guy yelling at his wife, being obnoxious and rude, and you're not calling him to repentance. Maybe you've seen somebody abusing their kids. Not, I'm not 
physical abuse, but emotional abuse with their kids. If you saw physical abuse, I think every one of you would respond. But see, sometimes we just let sin go because they're a believer and they answer to God. We all answer to God. You know, I'm not between them and God, but we have a responsibility to call them. But, but what happens in the church? We overlook these sins of our brothers because they're under the blood. But, oh, these sins of those non-believers out there, we rant and rave about those. We put articles on Facebook. If we get interviewed, we blast them because they're evil and sinning against God. And Paul says exactly the opposite. To these believers who are sinning, you confront it. To these non-believers, you show grace. And call them to Jesus. So when God forgives, I'm sorry. We do know that God is willing to forgive every sin every time, right? He is. But if a person will not repent, God will not forgive. God does not sell indulgences. You can't get pre-forgiven for your sin like a church did in history. God has set boundaries in place, and if a person crosses the line, then their opportunity for forgiveness is forfeited. The Bible specifically mentions Esau and Pharaoh, who no longer had an opportunity to repent and be forgiven. God even instructed Jeremiah three times not to pray for the people who were rebelling against God. God said, I've given them over. Like he says in, in Romans, he said, I, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them over. God, God has a line and a boundary. And so those people had crossed that line. Maybe you have been praying for somebody for their repentance. You've been praying and praying and praying for this person over time. And all of a sudden you just stop praying for them. Have you done wrong? No, it's probably the Holy Spirit telling you, let that go. They may still repent, but God said, you've prayed enough, let it go. When, when God forgives... He forgives those who repent, and when he forgives, he does not remove all the consequences. There are still consequences for sin in this life. So, he may forgive the infidelity, but the marriage is still broken. He may forgive the theft, but you may still go to prison. He may forgive the lie, but you maybe have lost a friend for the rest of your life. As 2 Samuel 12 teaches, God forgave David, right? God forgave David. But what happened in David's life? Immediately, his infant son died. And a long term, he had conflict in his family for the rest of his life. God forgives, but he does not remove all the consequences. So when someone is genuinely broken over their sin and repentant, then we should forgive. But we don't remove all the consequences. Grace brings forgiveness. Grace is a gift. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's a gift. But trust must be earned. So, if we had a person in our church who maybe was an Awana secretary and they stole some money, instead of turning it in 
they pocketed it. Then would we ever want that person ever handling money in our church again? No. Could we forgive them and get beyond it? Yes. Would we trust them with money? We wouldn't want to put them in that place of temptation again. So in modern Christianity, they've confused the concept of forgiveness with restored trust. They're two separate things. Forgiveness can be immediate. Forgiveness can even be one-sided. You can forgive before they even repent. They're still accountable to God. God won't forgive if they don't repent. But you could if you chose to. But you, you're not very smart if you then completely trust them. They have to earn that trust. It's not a grace gift. Trust is earned. So Solomon said in Proverbs 18, 19, a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. It's harder. If someone is genuinely convicted and broken over their sin, then they will not expect to be restored. And this is one of the ways I think you can tell if a person's genuine in their repentance. If they're genuine in their repentance, they expect consequences for their sin. But if they're not genuine, they expect to be restored to a place of trust. And so if somebody ever kind of push, pressures you to forgive them, they're not really repentant. It's very easy to say you're sorry, but there's a difference between feeling sorry and being crushed by the burden of your sin. So, um, the last thing, God calls you to be involved in your community. Paul told them, listen, don't separate yourself from all the sinners in the world because then you won't be involved with anybody at all. Don't do that. Separate from the sinners who are in the church hurting the church. Separate from them. But in the community, we get involved. We show love. We show grace. And we call people to repentance. In the church, we show love too. But in the church, it has to be tough love. That we have to do the right thing before God. See, what happens in some churches is God shuts the church down. That's what he did in Ephesus. God removed their authority to be his church. And that church just disappears from the pages of history. So, Jesus was a friend to sinners, but he was separate from them. Not once did he join in their ways, but he also didn't belittle them or ignore them or attack them. We call people to repentance. We show love and grace when they are not repentant then there's reason for discipline. Does that make sense? Some of you are nodding like nodding off. But, uh, uh, we, it's sometimes hard to be a church, isn't it? It's hard. And, and the hardest thing is none of us are perfect. I mean, if we were perfect, it'd be really easy to judge other people. But we're not. Listen, God calls us to step up, bring your A game, do what's right, call other people to repentance, admit your sin, seek forgiveness, 
and serve. And if something big shows up and it becomes known in the church, then as a church, we deal with it. And you know what's going to happen? Some people will never understand. Some people will be certain that we just had it in for that person. We don't. We just have it in for Jesus Christ. We want to do what he says. He makes the rules for his church. And like I said, happened all the time when I was a business manager. Hasn't happened very much in my 30 years of church ministry. But when it does, let's do the right thing for the glory of God and the good of the other person. So we are not an enabler. How about that? I got it right that time. Um, Father, we just thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for your willingness to forgive our sin. And Father, may we never be that one who fails to repent, who resists and crosses the line when you say, I'm going to let him die. I'll still let him into heaven, but I'm going to let him die. Lord, may we seek your forgiveness. May we humble ourselves before you. May you be honored and glorified in the manner in which we correct our errors. We're sorry that we do sin, but um, there is a way to deal with it appropriately, and we pray that we would do that in our own lives and in our church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.